Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. On today's show, I've deemed this guest the suitable, no, well, not suitable, the, the, maybe it's the sustainable boss, maybe? So let's kind of get into this a little bit and dive into why am I calling him the, that particular boss. So Josh, man, give our audience a little bit about who you are. Well, I've been hanging around private businesses for a little bit over 40 years. Uh, first 20 years, I owned a food service and vending company, sold that in 1995, went into the wealth management business, which morphed into helping private business owners who have uh, blue-collar private business owners who have successful businesses, make them personally and economically sustainable. And there's four pieces to sustainability that drive it and four results that come from it. So, I mean, obviously, like the key word in, in, in what you said is, is the reason why I've deemed you the sustainable boss. So, like, like if you could pick three words to, to, to essentially define yourself, which three to five words would you choose? Um, me personally or the business itself? You personally. Uh, curious, innovative, and kind of curmudgeonly like. Hmm. Interesting choice of words. So, like, let's dive into your, like, your business a little bit. Like, so, like, what are the steps in your business that you're doing to help entrepreneurs? Well, there's four areas. I mean, we, we have a full resource area that we go through that helps them look at literally every part of their business and their life, both from a personal and financial point of view. And most folks have something in their business that's not working the way they want it to. And we help them figure out in a very simple way, what it is that's not working and then come up with some simple solutions to solve them. But the simple is not easy, which is really important for people to understand. Solutions need to be simple. Implementing solutions takes some work. And if you're not willing to do the work, you're probably not gonna get the result. But the four areas of sustainability are, are you values like company? Do you have a recurring revenue stream? Have you made yourself operationally irrelevant in the business, which means you're not involved in the day-to-day? And have you systematized your business so the business can run without you? And when new people come in, they know what to do in a very rapid manner. Hmm. That's definitely interesting. So it seems like you have like a hybrid between like coaching and at the same time you're doing consulting and you're, you're figuring out like what their businesses are and then you're giving them the opportunity to streamline their processes, streamline their business to get the, the most value and the most profit out of their business from where they were moving forward to where you want them to go in that direction. Is that essentially correct? Yeah, that's pretty right on the money. And uh, what I tell people is that I'm not a coach, I'm not a mentor, I'm not a consultant. What I am is a thinking partner. Hmm. I sit next to you and I help you think through your problems. I help you figure out what it is you want to do. We drill down on why that's important. We go back and look at the what, because the first one we started with is usually going to change. And then we go to the really important step, which is who is going to help you. 
who and then we finally get around to how you're going to do it but we really almost never get around to how you're going to do it because mm-hmm. who you're going to help you is going to determine how you're going to get to point a to point b in mm-hmm. fact those people who you bring on board to help you basically should bring experts on who know how to do what you need to have done let them do it and you just stay at a relatively high level supervising what they're doing mm-hmm. in other words that's part of delegation which is operational relevance. Got it. So I mean, yeah, that, that definitely makes perfect sense. So with this particular system, like let's just, just think about like time, right? Like how did you even get into this business structure? Like when did you wake up on, like was it one of those things that you knew in high school? Did you figure it out post-college? When did you figure out this was going to be part of your journey? Um, I don't think I ever did. I think it just sort of happens. Just, you know, a step leads to another step, leads to another step, leads to another step. Uh, I was the education chairman for the National Vending Association for eight years, so I developed and taught a bunch of boot camps for vending operators. Okay. And the basis of what I'm doing right now is, came out of those those classes, and I've modified and simplified and made it more applicable for every business owner, but especially people who own blue-collar businesses where the people on the front line do or make something. Hmm. So, so you're talking about you went from vending machines and, and anybody that kind of understands vending machines, they're, they're kind of like cash cows to a certain extent, right? I mean, you kind of well, put products in and if you set it up correctly. I wish they were a cash cow. I mean, the industry itself is a really very, very marginally profitable business. Our best year was 5% for a mm-hmm. bottom line. Most of the time is 2 to 3% and most vending companies actually lose money every year. They so, make I mean, money in the cash flow, but they lose money. So you make a solid good point. So, like, just just talk about that a little bit. Like, why would somebody go into that space if they're only going to be relatively between three to five percent? Um, most people get into it by accident, which is how I did. When it's a family business, my father had a vending company. Back mm-hmm. when he went into the vending business, it was more like a twelve or thirteen percent bottom line. Mm-hmm. As time went on, every place they could have vending machines had vending machines. So now you're starting to compete on price and commission, and when you start competing on that, it's a race to the bottom which means that nobody was really making any money, uh, but we had a lot of costs and it was a good cash flow business. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely, um, it's one of those things that I think obviously you made a, a positive shift and you took what you learned from that business and you created a whole nother business based upon those philosophies. So I guess my next question would be like, when when is a good time for someone to kind of make that shift, right? Obviously you had a business that was at one time you said, your dad was at 13%. Now it's about three to 5% and you made that shift. If I'm a client coming to you and I'm telling you my same exact numbers that you just stated were your numbers, like what would you then tell me to do next? Get out of your business and find something else to do. Hmm. You know, it took me years to get there. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I woke up one day and said, Hey, this business stinks. I'm going to have to get out of it. Hmm. It took me three to five years, somewhere in that range to say, hey, this business isn't working so well to actually have sold the business to somebody else and make it their problem. You know, we we have choices. I mean, this is the thing that's really important. If you're going to start a business from scratch, one of the things you should be doing is looking at the profitability of your industry. If the industry is not profitable, don't bother. I mean, there's lots of industries you can go into, hundreds of them. And some of them, I mean, many of them, if you run them right, can make you a lot of money. Or if you happen to be, say, you're in a construction business and you're not using any process controls to improve how you how you do whatever it is you do. 
Uh, I happen to like Scrum a lot for project-based things, which is a, a software development tool, but it works really, really well for anything you got a project for. And I might say, hey, you know, if you've got a 5% bottom line, you're running, a, say, an interior contracting company. We're doing, uh, you know, uh, sheetrock and studs and all that kind of stuff. Well, what if I could come in and show you a system that would take 20% out of your labor today, which would take 20% of your labor, reduce it, and, we'll, and it goes right to your bottom line. So that 5% bottom line you had will now become a 14 or 15% bottom line. Would you be interested in that? Yeah, everybody should raise their hands instantly, right? Yeah, well, they have, again, they have to do the work. Mm -hmm. So knowing what you have to do and then getting around to do it are two different things. So, you know, one of the things that uh, Peter Drucker used to say is strategy eats tactics for lunch. And what I just talked about is a strategic decision you would make in your business and how you're running it. And then you have to implement that through tactics. But without the strategy behind what you want to do, you're never going to get to where you want to go. Oh. And you want to keep your strategies really simple, really understandable by everybody in your organization. Otherwise, they're not going to be used. So it seems like you're, you're running a lean model to, to, to a certain extent, kind of like the lean philosophy. Yeah, it's a lean philosophy. The philosophy really is W. Edwards Deming who in the 30s came up with his 14 points, used it, it was actually in the 20s, I mean, the 30s, it came up with his 14 points, and it was used by the United States to create the most amazing war machine of all times. Hmm. After World War II, American industry, for whatever reason, decided they didn't like him anymore. He was a really cranky old guy. So he went to Japan, and Toyota adopted him. And what came out of Temming's 14 points became the Toyota production system, which became what we know today as lean manufacturing. But the basis for that goes back to the 14 points that Deming developed in the 30s. And it's really easy to see what they are. Just Google Deming 14 points and you'll find out exactly what they are. Put them on your wall, memorize them, use them every day. And that's a great place to start for small businesses. Yeah, small businesses should not be doing lean. It's way too complicated. Lean is good for Toyota. It's good for GM. It's good for Ford. It's good for Caterpillar. It's probably good for Kraft Foods. It's not good for Joe's Plumbing and Heating. Way too complicated. Way too mo many moving parts. If you if you want to use what's modern uh, process improvement stuff, you either want to use Scrum, or you want to use the theory of constraints. Both are really good, and there's lots of information and lots of books on both. Yeah, I think I think you brought up a solid good point about like the 1930s. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize there's so much information that came out from the 1930s that we're still utilizing in some shape, form. A prime example would be like Napoleon Hill's. His mastermind principles are still being utilized effectively almost 100 years later. So I'm, that, I was, that was that was that was more than 100 years. Later. That was 1908. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm talking about the release of this book. He wrote about Andrew Carnegie, which is what his writing was about. Yeah, it was. Definitely it was. Definitely it was. So now you're in the beginning of the 20th century when you're writing about that. Interesting. So let's just go into your um, like your business structure. Is it structured as an LLC, an S-Corp, or a C-Corp? S-Corp. You should never have a C-Corp as a small private business today. Now, that may change in the future, but my guess is with the what's going to happen with Biden's tax code, you're going to want to stay as a pass-through corporation, which is an S corporation. 
And by the way, an LLC is just a corporate thing. You get taxed either as a C-Corp, an S-Corp, or a sole proprietor or a partnership within your LLC. So an LLC is not a structural form all by itself, or it's not a tax form by itself. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like there's a new form of uh, incorporation called B Corps, benefit corporations. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change your tax structure on one single bit. You still choose how you're going to be taxed within that B Corp structure. Same thing with an LLC. Do you have any active partnerships inside of your S Corp or is it just you are the sole proprietor of that? I'm the sole owner, but my wealth management business, we sort of act as a cooperative. Okay. You know, it's more of a, you know, I'm the owner, but there's not, there's limited profits within that company. And um, we just sort of share expenses between the other advisors and myself. Very nice. So, I mean, obviously, you're, you're very seasoned in, in business structure and then you understand a lot of different things that, on, on a deeper level than, than most business owners do. So how long have you been on your journey? And anyone that's listening to this may perceive that, you know, you're overnight success. But in reality, how long did it take you to get to where you are? <laughs> 42 years. Mm-hmm. And if you have some time and want me to tell some early stories, I'll tell you how bad a manager I was mm-hmm. when I first started at 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's dive into that. I mean, like, what's the worst experience you had in your early days? Well, I had I, <laughs> I had lots of bad experiences in my early days. The worst thing happened to me that could ever happen to a young business owner when I first started. I was really, really successful. And you would think, gee, that's a great thing. But when you're first starting out in business and you're 23 years old, when I put a million dollars in new business on our books in four months. Nice. Which is, you know, that, that was, it was lucky more than it was skillful. But because I was 23 and didn't have any life experience in running the business, I thought it was because of my great skill. So I went charging off being the worst boss of all times, making every mistake that could possibly be made because I didn't understand how to read a cash flow statement, which is way more important than your profit and loss statement or your balance sheet, but almost no private business owner knows, understands it. I was very profitable, but running out of cash. So the Grim Reaper came, the phone started ringing, said, well, I'm not gonna get paid. And I said, what do you mean? Well, you're 90 days overdue. Another phone rang, well, am I gonna get paid? What do you mean? I'm 120 days overdue. So I had this emergency going on that I never knew existed, was I had flat, used all the cash I had available. I used all the bank lines I had available. I used all my supplier lines I had available, and I didn't have enough cash coming in to pay off all the people I owed, which caused kind of a problem. I managed to work my way out where I renegotiated and set term loans up with my major suppliers, paid them COD, agreed to pay them my back balance over three years. They kept me in business. I didn't have to go bankrupt, but it still was a pretty stressful time in life, and that was a pretty hard lesson to learn. Uh, another lesson I learned was I was a till of the hun when it came to running my business. I had no idea what the values of the business was. I didn't know how important values were in the business. And it was my way or the highway. And when things went wrong, I would either scream at somebody, which was my usual thing. And I would blame them for screwing it up, even though they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing in the first place. Or I would justify why it wasn't my fault and it was their fault. And around when I was about 30 years old, or actually 29 years old, I went to a New Age seminar. And at that seminar, the main thing I learned was 
if you're not personally responsible in your life, you're never going to have real success. So I went back to my business and I said, hey, we're now going to have personal responsibility as our most core value. Except I wasn't being responsible at all. I was still blaming and justifying. So I was seen by all the people working in my company as a liar. And eventually I got it and I looked in the mirror and I said, until I start acting responsibly, nobody else in my company is going to act responsibly. So I learned that if you don't walk your talk, nobody believes a darn thing that comes out of your mouth. So that's where I learned the lesson of being a values-led company. Now, four or five years later, after I started down that road, we actually became a values-led company. I wasn't just talking about it. And as a result, the whole world changed. The people in our company knew what they were supposed to do. They knew how they were supposed to do it because we had systematized at the same time. And it became a much, much better place to work than with me screaming at people every day. Although I had the reputation of being a screamer for my entire 20 years I owned that business, I really only screamed for five of those 20 years. When you get a bad reputation, it never leaves you. It stays forever. So you just have to say, okay, that's part of life. But the truth is, if you're acting consistently with what comes out of your mouth, you're going to have a great company. Definitely. So, I mean, talking about like those mistakes, if you can go back and change anything, just change one thing, what's that one thing that you would change if you could go back and do it all over again? Well, see, the, the point with, you know, people ask that a lot, and I usually say nothing because without that learning experience, I wouldn't be where I was today. I am today. Hmm. As a result of, I was an American history major in college, which doesn't do a lot of to get you ready to run a business. My father was an English major in college. He never took any business courses. So he was my role model and he was a screamer. So I was a screamer. Hmm. And um, so you have to learn by making mistakes. If you don't make mistakes, you're not going to learn. Now, I can help you avoid mistakes. But if you're really stuck in a bad behavior pattern, you need to figure out as somehow I can help you understand that by thinking through your challenges that you're having with you. But I need to help you understand that. I do that through asking questions. A great leader doesn't tell, they ask. We all know what we're supposed to do. I've never talked to a business owner at some level when I ask them a question that they've never thought about that before. Everything I've said today, anybody who's a business owner listening to this podcast, you have thought about everything I've said at some level, or you've heard about it at some level. Very true. And the truth is, you need somebody sitting next to you, not coaching you, but helping you think through your actions and making it work in your way. See, coaches want you to do things their way. Mentors want you to do things your way. I want you to do things your way, but use best practices to do it. Way different way of looking at the world of helping people be, create more sustainable businesses and ultimately make your business sale ready. Huh. And by the way, if you make your business sale ready, it just means your business is in a position somebody else would want to own it, not that you want to sell it. Most of the time when we actually get a business to be sale ready, and I go back to that owner and say, okay, now you're ready to sell your business. They look at me like I'm crazy. And they say something like this. 
why would I ever want to sell my business now? I'm having way too much fun and I'm waking, making way too much money. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not even working very hard. Makes perfect sense. So, I mean, obviously you're, you're a hell of an entrepreneur, right? And you brought up your dad uh, about a minute ago saying that he was a English study. Do you have any entrepreneurs in your family? Like where is your entrepreneurial hustle and tenacity coming from? Well, my father was an entrepreneur. He would start, he started a zillion business. He had a couple that were quite successful, but he would start and buy businesses all the time. Most of them were really dumb, um, but he did it. Uh, his father was an entrepreneur. He was an immigrant from Russia, sold newspapers on the corners when he was seven years old, when he first got to the United States, ended up owning a slipper factory during World War II, sold that and retired when he was 45 years old. Okay. On my mother's side, her family were peddlers. They went into the women's retail clothing business. So both sides of my business, my family, are, you know, strong uh, history of being private business owners. Definitely has. But I, I think you could definitely tell. I mean, it, it's there's some people that kind of grow into entrepreneurship, and there's some people that I would say kind of like yourself. You were kind of born into it, like you've seen it your entire life, and obviously it kind of shows. I mean, you're you're, you're definitely well seasoned in versed in entrepreneurship, 100%. So let's just dive into like your like your family life a little bit. Like, how do you currently juggle your work life with your family life? Well, I don't believe in uh, work-life balance. I think it's a myth. I think it's work-life integration. You integrate your work into your life and you integrate your life into your work. Um, sometimes you're working 80 hours a week and sometimes you're working five hours a week. Oh. For me, you know, my kids are gone and grown. I have two puppies and a very nice wife. And we'll ski a lot during the wintertime. I ride my bike a lot during the summertime. I'm a live music freak. I go to live music stuff as much as I possibly can. Okay. Unfortunately, the last year, so I knocked that off. Um, you know, I play around at playing the bass. I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. So it's not like, you know, I all I do is work, 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 work. And I read, I've been reading almost a book a week for the last, uh, since 1976, when I graduated from college. Wow. It's, it's funny that you brought that up about reading a book a week, because, you know, recently I started a book club, and that was like one of the first things that I established right away in the first week was how to be able to read a book per week, because the average CEO reads about 60 books per year to just kind of get that group of people to understand it. Reading a book per week is not as hard as you may think it is. All you, need to re re all you need to do is find 45 minutes a day to read or even a half an hour a day to read. And you're going to read the average book in, you know, three and a half, four hours. But you got to find three and a half, four hours to do that. The other thing you can do is learn how to read faster. Yeah. I don't read one word at a time. I read two lines at a time. So I just scan down the page. Oh. So I read a little bit fast. I read about 75, 80 words, 80 pages an hour as a rule. So I can read a 200-page book in a couple, two and a half, three hours. Uh, the other thing you need to do is turn off your TV and read. I mean, if you actually sit down there, what, here's a good exercise to do, and I have all my clients do this. For two weeks, on a yellow pad, every 15 minutes, write down what you're doing. And at the end of two weeks, you go back and look at that. You're going to find that at least half the time you spend doing things a, other people could do it better. And B, much of that stuff you shouldn't be doing in the first place because it's just a time waster and adds no value to your life. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. 
So like this going to like your morning morning routines, your morning habits. <laughs> I always get this asked this question. I think excuse me, but it's just a, you know for me it's a dumb question because I don't have a morning routine. I get up, I take the dogs out, I make coffee, and I wander around playing with the dogs and go outside if it's nice. And I happen to like Morning Joe, which is, you know, a show on MSNBC. Uh -huh. I watch that for a half an hour and then I go downstairs and start doing whatever it is I want to do for that day. Huh. You know, I, I will make, I'll do a journal entry a few times a week. Um, but it's not something I do. I don't have something I do. This is what I do every day to get ready for the day. I, you know, I, again, um, if you are somebody who's highly systematized in how they live their life, uh -huh. That sort of routine works really well for you. I'm not. Uh, there's a, an index called the Colby Index, which, which measures energy units around different areas. And somebody who has that high morning routine sort of thing would be a high follow-through. In other words, they have a lot of energy for doing things in a systematic way. I have no energy to do things in a systematic way. I just use systems to keep me from going chasing my favorite bright, shiny object to the second. Because my, my, my attention get scattered really fast. When I'm writing a book, the first thing I do is I write for an hour for 2,500 words. When I'm done with that, then I do everything else in my day because that takes some real deep focus. Oh. Or if I'm doing like, you know, over the weekend, I did seven videos. So for the first day, I sat down for three hours and I wrote seven video scripts. And then the next day I shot, sat down first thing in the morning and I shot seven video scripts. So that was the one thing I really wanted to accomplish that day. And I did that first thing in the morning. Huh. So that's about as much of a morning routine as I have. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for you, it's just so ingrained in you to do what you do. But I mean, the reason for the asking that question is probably somebody listening to this podcast that may be much like you and you just kind of outline and define things. Even when you went into talking about your scripting, right? Like, like that's not something you do every single day, but what you pretty much said is that you get into deep work, you set time aside and you make sure you do these particular things every single morning so you can get the best results every single day. And that's like the major takeaway for someone listening to this to understand like that's your morning routine and they could relate to it. Well, that's my, I mean, essentially what that comes down, comes from is a concept that Stephen Covey had years and years ago called big rocks. And you should always have two or three big rocks in your life, which are major projects you're working on. And those are the things that you do first thing in the morning. Now, I will tell you, I don't do deep work every day. There are days where I just screw around for the whole day. You know, I mean, I mean to do something useful, but I end up doing nothing and I don't beat myself up about it mm. unless it happens for three or four or five days in a row. And then I kind of have to have a conversation with myself and say, is this what you really want to be doing? Is this how you want to live your life? And the answer will usually be no. And then I have to get some discipline in place to actually just go and do the stuff. Now, discipline is a really important skill to bring to the party. If you don't have it, you're not going to be successful. Mm. Wow. So I think we, we, we went over like several different topics and, and we alluded to the book club a little bit. So this is the time where I'm, I'm going to ask you a three-part question and it's about the books that you're reading, right? I, I want to know like what books that you could recall that you would want to recommend from your past that helped you to get to where you are. What books are you currently reading right now and have you written any books? I have written uh, two books. Um, this is my second book, which I just got copies of 
uh, if you can't um, see this because you're listening to the podcast, it's the sale ready company, what it takes to create a business someone would want to own, even if you have no intention of selling, and it's a parable. And my first book is sustainable, a fable about creating a personally and economically sustainable business. And that's also a parable. And the second book is actually a continuation of the first story. I find that parables are much easier to consume for business owners because they like stories and how-to books. Uh, my sister, when she read my first book, said, you know something? This is the first business book I've ever finished because I wanted to find out what happened. So uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Patrick Lencioni, who is the parable king. The guy has written, I don't know, 10, 12 parables, and they're really good. And also one of my favorite business books by him is a book called The Advantage, which is his only how-to book. And in there, he talks about values and how to use values in your company. And he puts values in the four buckets, which is really interesting. Um, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a book that everybody should be reading. Management by Peter Drucker is a book that everybody should be reading. Um, if you're interested in sales, The Challenger Sales is the best sales book I've ever read. If you're interested in how to create content that's really good for you, you want to read Story Brand by Donald Miller and integrate that stuff because his stuff is just amazing. In fact, we just launched our second Story Brand site this morning. So if you want to check it out, go to www.sustainablebusiness.co and you'll see an example of what a story brand site looks like. Um, for marketing, my, my favorite book of all times is um, Book Yourself Salad, the illustrated version by Michael Port. That way you can go through all the exercises in the book and you, at the end of the day, you'll have developed a really good niche and avatar of who your best customer is and you'll know how to stay in contact with them. So there's, you know, give me a topic and I'll tell you the book. I mean, as far as um, Scrum goes, you want to read Scrum by Jeff Sutherland. He's the inventor of Scrum. If you want to read about the theory of constraints, you want to read The Goal, um, which is a great, again, another parable, which is a really good example of how to use the theory of constraints, which is just whack-a-mole for business. In other words, you find a bottleneck, you fix it, and you wait for the next bottleneck to appear. So... Um, you know, I've probably read 1,500 business books over the years. And at the end of both of my books, I have, I think, about 120 books I put in the bibliography that you should read. Oh. Wow. So, I mean, I think, I think that kind of opens up Pandora's box to a certain extent. I mean, obviously, my question for you is, like, listening to you recite these books, right? Like, most people, they would have to say... I, like I've heard before, oh, I don't remember, or I remember the, the title of the book, but I don't remember the author. But for you, you were distinctly stating book titles and authors. So my question is, do you have a photographic memory or have you practiced the art of memory to get to the point to where you're just reciting <laughs> these things off the top of your head like that? I have no memory. I cannot remember anybody's name. I embarrass myself all the time with that. Hmm. Um, it happens to be I've talked about these books enough where they're ingrained. Hmm. And when I do a public talk, when I'm on the stage and I'm doing a keynote presentation, I'll usually mention 15 to 25 books during my presentation. Hmm. And the reason is I'm a real believer that if you really want to be good at what you're doing, read the masters. Hmm. You know, I'm a, a big fan of, the sto of stoicism. And stoicism fits really well with my core value, which is personal responsibility. 
And it sort of talks about how do you get to where you want to be in the most effective manner? And the thoughts and um, things that have been written by people who have come before me or people, all these people are way smarter than I am. So I get to steal their best thoughts and integrate it into my life. And I talk about these books all the time with the people I work with. Hmm. Got it. So, I mean, repetition, repetition, repetition. Yeah. So where do you see yourself and your company, right? I mean, obviously, they are two different things, but they're working together in unison. So where do you see both the Alliance in 20 years from now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 68 years old, so I can promise you 20 years from now, I'm not likely going to be doing my business. Okay. Um, so I, I basically, I say I have a personal, my personal mission in life is to do interesting things with interesting people. So that's how I sort of measure everything I do today. Cool. If it's not interesting to do, and I'm not doing it with people who excite me, I have no interest in doing it. You know, I, I'm luckily have saved probably enough money for retirement. I'm working for enjoyment more than I am. You know, of course, I want to make a living. But it really, for me, is if it's not fun, why do it? And actually, if you want to know the truth, it was not fun why I do it. It should be your mantra when you're 30 years old as well as 68 years old. Yeah, definitely some inspiring information. So what are some tools, like you said earlier, you were talking about Scrum. What other softwares are you currently using that you wouldn't be able to do what you do without? Well, I could do everything I do with a paper and a pencil if I had to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the truth was when we put our first computer in, it was 1978. It was a computer that was as big as a washing machine. It was made by Digital Equipment Corporation. Um, it had uh, 256 kilobits of memory, not megabits, kilobits. It had 20 megabytes as hard drives, and the hard drive container was as big as a washing machine. And it took uh, about 80 hours to run a profitability statement that would now take about three minutes, if that. So, <laughs> did that run off of punch cards, or I mean, what kind of? No, no, this was key. This was key punched. Okay. Yeah, this was after punch cards. Um, punch cards were the early '70s. The late '70s, we actually had uh, terminals for inputting. Got it. And so, all the computer does, and the software does, it takes what you could do with a paper and pencil, does it faster and more intensely. You know, obviously Excel. Everybody works with Excel. My favorite project management tool is a program called Monday, which I, you know, could I live without if I had to, but boy, it would make life a whole lot more difficult than it is. Um, I use Basecamp for some really, you know, basic interactions with people. I don't use Slack because I hate it. Um, There's a new program out, which um, is called Mighty Networks, which we're putting together for communities, which we like a lot. Uh, we use ClickFunnels mostly for landing pages, and I use HubSpot for my website in integrated marketing. Right, right. And so, there's a bunch of other programs we use that are specific for um, the wealth management world. Got it. So let's just go into like final words of wisdom, right? To so just say, to your point, you say 30 years old, you would say things a little bit differently, Right. What words of insight would you give to a 30-year-old coming up in, in this particular space and you want to not advise them or coach them, but you want to point them in the right direction? 
Well, I would ask them some questions, first of all. What is it they're interested in? Where is their passion? Are they following their passion? And if their passion doesn't appear to make any money at it, how could you figure out to make money at it? Um, you know, it's really interesting. If you talk to, I went to a, a Brendan Bouchard seminar a few years ago, and it was called Experts Academy. So it was about teaching you how to take your expertise and make it into a business. And he, about halfway through the seminar, he asked, how many people here have a business or an expertise they want to share with the world? Now, there were about 5,000 people in the room. If 100 hands went up, that would have been a lot. And I was sitting there saying to myself, my God, you guys are all trying to do a business, and you have no idea what your business needs to be. So the first thing you need to do is figure out what your business is going to be, who's it going to serve, and most importantly, what problem does it solve? If it doesn't solve a problem, you have a crappy idea for a business. Definitely solid information. I mean, when I'm just stopping and I'm recapping out what you just said in my head, and it really comes down to any solution that anyone is creating, any coaching, any mentoring, any online course. At the end of the day, if it's not solving a problem or it's, it is not the solution to a particular problem, then why even create it? So, I mean, it's definitely insightful words of wisdom. Yeah, I, one of my um, sort of more obnoxious habits, habits I have is I look at other people's websites and it's amazing how few people ever talk about the problems they solve on their websites. They talk about the stuff they do, but nobody really cares about the stuff they do. You do. They care about the problems you solve. Okay. My example is if I buy a car, um, I don't really care if there's 400, 500, or 1,000 horsepower under the hood. What I really care is there's a hill which is outside the town I live on, will my car in cruise control go up that hill at 70 miles an hour and not lose speed? Hmm. If it does, I, that car has all the power I need. I don't care about torque or power or any of that other stuff because it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. And is the car big enough for me to fit in because I'm 6'5"? Those are really the only, you know, is it comfortable? Those are the things I want to know. Those are the problems I need solved. I don't care how many inches of space there is. It's just, can I fit in it and put my legs out straight? Oh. So when you're running a business, if you're not thinking about the problems that you solve for your customers, you're missing the point with your customers. Well said, definitely well said. So how can people find you? I mean, like what's your, your website, your social media profiles? Uh, my I have two websites. One is www.stage2planning.com. That's with the number two. And my other one is www.sustainablebusiness.co. And that's .co, not .com. Um, those are the easiest places to find me. Both have contact me if you want to send me an email. My email address is jpatrick at stage2planning.com. Uh, social profile on Twitter is Ask Josh Patrick. And on Facebook, um, look for the Sustainable Business. You'll find our business page. And uh, I don't do Instagram, so I can't tell you anything about that. <laughs> I'm too yeah. old for Instagram, I'm told by my daughter. That's just the way the kids try to keep the adults off of their particular platforms. That's just the way they look at no, it. She's right? 36, so I don't think really care. <laughs> so let's go to some bonus questions, right? 
and I think because you're a historian and you studied history, this, this is probably going to be a pretty interesting answer coming from you. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Oh boy, that's a hard one. To, that's a hard one to answer for me because there's like there's a zillion. Probably Buckminster Fuller. Hmm. Um, Buckminster Fuller is a guy from the twenty. He was alive in the twentieth century. Invented the geodesic dome. Was a mathematician. Probably one of the most interesting philosophical thinkers in the world. He had a very interesting thing about mistakes. He used to say it said two things. He said one, you don't learn less. And two, mistakes are learning opportunities. And those were the two statements that sort of made a light bulb go off in my head to say, hmm, I might be doing this wrong the way I'm running my business. Because I used to punish people who made mistakes. I never really thought about mistakes being learning opportunities. Hmm. I was the only one who could make mistakes, not other people in my business. And when I learned that other people could make mistakes, it, it turned everything around for us. Wow. Interesting. Another bonus question for you. Outside of your, your, your family, outside of your kids, what's your greatest achievement to date? Hmm. Making it through cancer. I had a very serious bout of cancer about 12 years ago. It took me about four or five years to get through it. Hmm. What kind of cancer was it? Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's a subset called mantle cell, which is a very nasty, used to be very deadly um, type of lymphoma. Wow. Yeah, I definitely commend you. I mean, I had suffered from a stroke two years ago. So, I mean, just the road to recovery is one of those things. So, I mean, I look at you as one of the survivors and one of the, the people that kind of figured out that, you know, life doesn't have to end when you're confronted with death and there's always more opportunities after that. Yeah, it's really, there's some really interesting stuff going on with uh, uh, mushrooms and people using them to stop fearing death. I've been doing a lot of research into that again. You know, I've seen 100 Grateful Dead concerts, so um, you can take with what that means. Uh, <laughs> so I've, I have found that microdosing or using um, hallucinogenics yeah. for facing really, really, really life, difficult life um, things, is getting some really interesting research done on it right now. Well, so it's pretty interesting. I mean, I definitely will look into that. So going into closing, I mean, I always have an opportunity to, to interview people like yourself, and, and I always love the insights, and I love, like, the words of wisdom. Um, on this journey, on this podcast, are there any questions that may have come up that you would like to ask me? Yeah, what do you think is the most interesting things we've talked about today? I think it's collective. I think, like, I could definitely, for me, it's the, the overall conversation, and I can definitely see you utilizing your history background, like you're, you're, you're pinpointing particular things, your dates, like even early when you was correcting me about like the, the, the 30s versus the 1908, it's like you understand the history of what has happened and you're using it in today's world. You understand back then and you're converting it into now. And I think that's my general takeaway that I love and, and embracing from what you said today. Cool. Well, the thing about history, which is really interesting, in high, in high school, your history class is what? In other words, what dates did something happen at? Mm -hmm. When you go to college, history no longer deals with dates. It's all about why. Why did this event happen? And that's the most interesting thing about business also. Why is a business successful? Why is a business not successful? Mm -hmm. Why is one person in the same industry 
far more successful than another person in the exact same industry. So if you focus on whys, life becomes a lot more interesting, at least for me. Yeah, and I think that that goes back into like your your other statement about, you know, if you're not solving a problem, right, it's, then why are you doing it to begin with? And that, that's like the conclusion of everything is you have to essentially apply whatever you're doing. That's your value add to solve someone else's problem or educate them on how to solve their own problems. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, I definitely appreciate your time, Josh. I mean, it was definitely an enlightening episode. It's, it's another one of these episodes. I've had one of these maybe in the last week that's just kind of like, I wish I wasn't interviewing you. I wish I was sitting there taking notes. So it's just going to be one of the episodes I'm going to go back and review over and over again. But it was definitely a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thanks so much. It was really fun doing this. I appreciate it. Great. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.